Hello and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. I'm Jeremy Gordon, Assistant Editor of Funds Insider at CityWire, and I'm thrilled to be joined on the podcast today by not one but two fund managers, Lion Trust Anthony Cross and Julian Foch. Anthony and Julian spearhead Lion Trust's economic advantage team, which runs four UK equity funds spanning microcaps to larger companies. The largest of those is the 6.6 billion Special Situations Fund, which is effectively a basket of their favourite UK companies, from little-known small caps to blue chips like BP and Royal Dutch Shell. And the fund has been a top performer over the years. Uh, so, Anthony, Julian, welcome. Anthony, perhaps we can start with you as you've managed a special situation since its launch in 2005 and Julian joined, I think, three years later in 2008. Before we get more into the process, let me take you back in time 16 years ago, if I can. What what did you want to achieve when you, you started the fund and what do you wish you, you knew then that you know today? Well, what I wanted to achieve was to take what I was doing in smaller companies up into the broader all shares. So there's a massive chance to uh, take the process and apply it to FTSE 250 stocks and also FTSE 100 stocks. And one of the reasons why I thought it would work is that we had a number of small companies that did move into the FTSE 250 over our period of ownership and continue to prosper. And so many of the intellectual capital assets that we look for are highly relevant to larger companies as well as smaller companies. So I really thought the process could work in the all cap space, including obviously all the FTSE 350 stocks. Yeah. And, and you know, broadly, uh, has it worked in the, in the all cap space as you would have hoped? Or have there been any you know, unexpected differences moving up from smaller companies? Um, no, it has broadly, broadly worked indeed. And there are certain strengths of intellectual capital that are perhaps more pre- prevalent in the larger companies. So, for example, distribution networks, big scale global networks are found much more often in your big businesses. Uh, Quite often, high recurring income is found more in smaller companies. And then intellectual property, which is one of the other big three assets that we look for in companies, is often found right across the market. So engineering companies are a classic example of, of businesses where there is a real strength of intellectual property. And quite often they can be both small companies, mid cap companies, as well as FTSE 100 companies. Um, so things I wish I'd, I'd known about more at the time when I launched the fund was really the power of the digital landscape and how that would change. Uh, I think some of us or, or many of us were quite scarred by the, the tech boom and bust of 2000. And actually, although it was a big problem for investors at the time, it was a, a real indication of the way that the world was going to change. And if you go back to when Special Sits was launched in 2005, that was two years before the first iPhone. But what happened very quickly after that period was the real rise and power of the digital landscape. So the Internet, uh, digital communication, and that had a massive impact upon companies and a number of very successful companies that, that subsequently have come to the market. And you can think of things like Hargreaves Lansdowne as a huge beneficiary of that that digital change that that occurred, um, particularly since the sort of 2007 times onwards. Uh, That's that's very interesting and certainly gives us more more to get into later, given the the very strong performance of of uh, of all, you know, almost all businesses with uh, digital presence during uh, the the COVID-19 pandemic. 
you know, we should say early that the, the benefits of hindsight about the, uh, the the growth of digital aside, since inception, the fund has been a very strong performer. Uh, since 2005, it's returned in the order of 570% for investors versus about 165% for the FTSE All Share. That's to the end of August. So massive outperformance there. Um, let's talk about the, the economic advantage process, which has achieved those returns a bit more, Julian. And uh, Anthony's already mentioned some of the attributes, uh, the three key attributes that you look for in companies. But what is the process about in a nutshell? Sure. So um, it's essentially a three-stage process. So Ant's great insight, if I can put it that way, um, when he started off, was about the importance of intellectual um, capital or intangible assets to give them their other name. So, you know, we're all used to, everyone who starts in the, in the city starts as an analyst, you study companies, etc. And you're often, you're really, what you're looking at is to understand their, their tangible assets, things you can touch. But, um, you know, increasingly in this day and age, uh, the, the things that give companies defining advantages, we can think of perhaps Apple is the, is the, the biggest, the best advantage in my lifetime. When you look at what really makes a company something special, it's not really to be found in the balance sheet and by studying its, its tangible assets. It's about the intangible assets. So things, advantages, if you like, that companies have, but you, which you can't touch, really. So stage one of the process is to say, you know, for any potential investment, can we looking through the lens, identify what we think is a key competitive advantage stemming from, you know, one of it, one of three really important intangible assets. And by the way, there are academics who have looked at this uh, over the years, there are 25, 26 different categories of intangibles. But the big three, we think, are um, either intellectual property, so some advantage that stems from the, the intelligence, the, 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 the genius of your people. It might be patented products, it might be know-how or ways of working. Um, or secondly, distribution. So physical distribution, you know, big big global network uh, like Diageo or Unilever might have electronic network or a high level of market share, um, which it just it essentially enables you to get your products to, to to the end user. Or and then thirdly, high levels of recurring revenue. So the idea here is we would contrast an ordinary <clears throat> retail business, perhaps which opens its doors at the start of the day, doesn't know whether one person or 10,000 people are going to cross the threshold, with companies that operate on, on multi-year contracts where you're going to really basically get paid whether whatever the state of the economy. So that's stage one of the process. You know, can we identify one of these three uh, must-have <coughs> intangibles um, that in theory should give you a competitive advantage? Stage two is then to say, well, okay, that's all very well. If you have a competitive advantage, that should show up in superior financial returns but what are we going to use to measure these financial returns most people use earnings or profits but there are problems with that uh, earnings are a one-dimensional measure they're easily disguised or manipulated perhaps to hit uh, you know targets that management payout targets and also uh, particularly where acquisitions are concerned it's very easy to boost earnings or um, uh, profits by overpaying wildly for an acquisition but that won't show up in your financial returns so to get around that we use a, th a third-party framework um, based on cash flow return on capital. This is something that came into the UK market via a company called Holt 20, 25 years ago. And essentially, they're, like all great ideas, it's, it's brilliantly simple. The, the, the concept is that the, the basic idea of any business is to, to raise money, either from the debt or equity markets, and then use that money to either make something or carry out a service or buy and sell other businesses. And at the end of the day, the aim of every successful business, once you've taken into account tax and inflation, is to consistently earn a return on your activities higher than the cost of capital that you've raised um, you know, to finance those activities. Otherwise, no point being in business and then 
ultimately you won't stay in business. So what uh, Quest, which is the framework we use, um, does is, is look at every business on the same basis. It, essentially, it's really treating every company as a series of cash flows, uh, cash, load, cash flows out deployed on projects um, and then cash flows in the receipts from those projects. And the idea is to, to consistently get a true picture of whether the company's uh, succeeding as, a, as an economic entity, whether it's consistently earning high returns or not. And then thirdly and lastly is, is the concept of, or the very important concept of valuation. It's obviously, well, it's fantastic finding companies with competitive advantages, you know, which have great return profiles. But if, you, if you've already overpaid for this, if all the upside is priced in, you won't make any money as an investor. So valuation is important, but also we think it needs to be kept in context. So we look at valuation last, uh, it's the third stage of R3. And the idea here is, can we buy a, you know, a business where these, these perceived upsides are not already captured by the market? So for our large caps, we use five standard, um, uh, relatively standard valuation measures. And the idea is to buy a, a company at a, a discount to the market on one year consensus numbers. For small caps, which tend to grow faster and, and, and therefore are perceived as such and, and trade at an expensive, uh, more expensive valuations, um, we're a bit more relaxed. So the idea is here that we will be able to, we will buy a small cap if it trades at a, a price um, or a valuation level in line with existing companies in that sector already. So that in a nutshell, uh, a long nutshell, a big nutshell, <laughs> is, the, is the process. Stage one, can we, you know, can we identify one of these three must-have intangible assets that should in theory give you a competitive advantage? Stage two, can we see that you, when we understand your returns and, and that you're delivering on that advantage? And then three, can we buy you at a, a discount to the, to the market? Okay, thank, thanks, Julian. Well, it, 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 it's as you, you've given a description of quite an involved process there. Um, in terms of the three attributes you, you look for, I, I wanted to laser in on, on, on a couple of those a bit more. Um, you mentioned strong distribution channels um, and supply chain issues have very much hit the headlines recently. What, what's a business that, that embodies those strong distribution channels you look for? I mean, you, you mentioned Diageo, for example, uh, and how, how has... Um, how, how have they helped that company during the pandemic? Uh, Anthony, perhaps you can answer that. Um, so yeah, distribution is a is a very, very powerful attribute that we have, and, and a, you know, a great example of that is in is in AstraZeneca, uh, huge global distribution network, um, multiple coverage across countries uh, that they've built up over a long period of time. And what you saw with AstraZeneca is that when they were looking at, you know, who would then supply the, the, the Oxford vaccine, um, this was a partner that um, both Oxford and AstraZeneca, they bo both wanted to partner together in the recognition that that global distribution network would be extremely powerful. Um, and we saw that, you know, in evidence clearly within the UK, the distribution uh, ability of the company, the manufacturing ability of the company, but also in those territories where AstraZeneca was used. Um, so, you know, the people often laser in on these um, pharmaceutical companies as having very strong intellectual property. Yes, they do, but they also have very, very strong distribution networks. And we've seen that with AstraZeneca and also Glaxo. If I could just amplify on that, I mean, it is amazing, Jeremy, you know, it's only, it was only the 30th of April last year that the very first announcement hit the wires of a collaboration between Oxford University, which initially discovered the vaccine, and Astra, uh, which, which got the license and was responsible for distribution. And by the end of this year, Astra is expecting to deliver up to 3 billion doses, 3 billion doses of, of COVID-19 vaccine across the globe. And so that's a huge testament, I think, to the, to the 
distribution network. I mean, it's not, and it's not just. I mean, the seventy-six thousand employees that directly employed in a hundred countries worldwide. A big part of Astra's uh, operations is, is partnership. Astra has over eight hundred business partnerships in place today, and it's that sort of presence that allowed it to get agreements with um, with the Bill Gates Foundation and the you know, Serum Institute of India. Um, so. Uh, it's, it is the standout example from the last 18 months of, a, of distribution um, in, in our portfolio, I think. Yeah, given, given that you have mentioned the AstraZeneca or Oxford vaccine, um, you know, the, the company has, uh, well, clearly stepped to the plate, but they, <laughs> it's fair to say the vaccine's also created some, some issues, perhaps, for, particularly from a, a PR standpoint for AstraZeneca. Do you, do you think it's going to be an asset for the company long, long term? I think it is. I mean, it's not too, you know, you don't have to go back very far. I remember that Glaxo was in um, was in the mire over uh, sales practices in China. Um, uh, you know, price gouging was very much um, an, an issue, um, which probably Donald Trump focused on and has, and has been issues. So I, and I think actually stepping up this way has, has very much rehabilitated the drugs companies. There is an opportunity that they've they've been given and which they've taken there's there are obviously issues about um there was the obviously the court case about access but i mean i think astra got a very favorable outcome from that it's well known that the companies don't make a lot of money from the uh, from vaccines like this um but i mean uh, the, the distribution network obviously operates to um the, the more normal model is that company develops its own IP and, and puts it through that, um, that that network. I mean, Astra has got, I think currently it's got, uh, last year it delivered trial data for 29 approvals for new medicines around the world and the current pipeline's 171 projects. So I think um, net net, the fact that, it, that the company did set up has, has, has done it, Astra itself and the industry an enormous amount of good. Okay, thank thank you. And uh, well, just a kind of more general point on these intangible assets you looked for. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you mentioned clearly uh, once you've identified them, you, you focus back in on cash flows. But it makes me wonder, do you look anywhere unusual uh, for your ideas uh, for what companies to invest in? <laughs> not not quite sure how to take that. I mean, we 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 look in pretty conventional areas. So you look it starts in conventional ways. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're, I mean, obviously, we're not uh, we're not uh, averse to getting ideas from anywhere. But my typically, the idea search will will come with the FT, which is remains to this day the most reliable source of information. We work backward. I mean, obviously, brokers, so the sell side analysts, know very much what we're looking for. We've been around for a long time, so they will I, bring ideas to us. We we run screens based on. I mean, it's quite hard to screen for. Um, intangible assets, but uh, stage two of our process, which I, I mentioned, you know, the cash return on capital yes. profile lent, lends itself to running regular screens and looking, okay, which of the companies that are, are showing quite good returns or improving returns, hmm, why is that? Let's delve a little into into what's driving that. And I mean, you know, in this day and age, I mean, it, it remains the fact that our our big work is usually done by ourselves on a report and accounts, you know, and mm. so just really looking through the report and accounts and doing a search for intellectual property, a word search or, or distribution, you know, so for your information in the in the 275 page uh, AstraZeneca report accounts, I think you'll find 14 mentions of distribution. <laughs> Right. Um, and so it, you know it, it's still quite old-fashioned um, uh, donkey work but uh, I don't know if you want to add to that and I'm not sure there's any way I'm not sure I would I, I... yeah I mean yeah, obviously, so well, the other big thing I'd add is that 
Now, we have a team of five of us. We have four different funds. So we, we start off right at the bottom end of the market cap spectrum with our micro cap fund. Uh, and that fund is very good at, at unearthing very you know, small businesses, you know, below 150 million market cap. Uh, we then have our smaller companies fund that will take some of those ideas um, and, and build on them. Uh, and it's having all that smaller companies expertise within one team is a great way of bringing ideas up into special situations. So, you know, a good number of our, our small companies over time have grown to the size where they are applicable for special situations. They might remain small caps when we buy them or they might have graduated on to being FTSE 250 stocks. Um, and the AIM market as well has developed a lot as a, as a marketplace. And there's some very big companies now on AIM. We own companies like Gamma Communications and RWS and Keywords, you know, big businesses. Um, but it's having that smaller company's expertise is a great way of noticing new industries, uh, coming across new companies, and also often owning companies for a very long period of time before they come into the Special Situations Fund. Yeah. Okay, thank, thank, thanks both. I, I did want to come on to smaller companies, as as you said, Andy. That that's where you started this this process. Um, now I think the Special Situations Fund has today grown to over six billion of assets, uh, and I read in Lion Trust trading statement this morning that your team of five people, uh, you know, is managing over ten billion of assets. So you, you you've certainly got your your hands full. Um, I just wondered when a fund gets as big as Special Situations is. Can you, we know about the risks of smaller companies and, and, and liquidity? You know, can you still really access those, those best ideas that are coming up from the micro cap fund and smaller companies fund? Yeah. So the nature of the smaller companies that we own does change over time. So you know, when I, when we started Special Sits all those years ago, it was obviously a tiny fund. And you could buy a microcap smaller company at that stage. And then as the years went on, you know, your microcap company would be too small to get a proper unit size within the fund. So you'd be moving on to more sort of general smaller companies in terms of market cap. And now we're looking really at the larger smaller companies when we start a new position in special situations. Uh, and also what we tend to have is a larger number of smaller companies than we would have done five or 10 years ago to, to enable us to maintain that sort of 20 to 30% uh, that we have in small companies and AIM. Um, so we're still getting a very strong smaller companies effect. They're still providing a lot of performance to the fund, but it, becomes, it comes from more of a portfolio effect of small companies rather than individual small companies within the fund making a material difference themselves. And so there are upsides and downsides of that. You know, portfolio effect is less risky, but sometimes you don't have the, the impact of a, of a single small company absolutely motoring for you within the fund. Um, the overall yes. fund feels absolutely fine in times of size. And as you very kindly said at the beginning, you know, quite a lot of the, the, the growth of the fund has come through performance over the years. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the growth of the fund, particularly in the last 12 months, you know, most of that has come through um, performance rather than, than flows. Um, so it feels very manageable. We're keeping that element in smaller companies that we want to. Um, the flows are fine. Um, the ideas are, I think, as strong as they've ever been. You know, we've got quite a few companies within the fund, particularly within you know, the FTSE 350, where we could add to the position. So we're kind of, you know, we, we do a risk scoring, we do a position sizing based upon the risk of the business, 
but there's quite a few companies where we could add more to them happily within their risk band. Uh, so, you know, the scope to take on more money, if that's where the market wants to push money back into UK all cap funds, you know, we could take on more quite happily within this fund. OK. And, you know, is there a limit to how big you think the fund could get before it started really warping the process? I don't think so. I mean, we, I can remember Jules and I were, were thrilled when the fund got to, you know, <laughs> 500 million uh, and people were asking us yeah. then, you know, when are you going to close it? Um, <laughs> but the testament really is performance. You know, in the, you know, last year we were we had strong relative performance. This year we're doing fine again. And as I said, right at the beginning of our of our conversation today, you know, the, the attributes that we look for in companies, the intellectual capital, the high returns on invested capital, we think are highly applicable right across the market. And during the COVID times, we found some great new businesses that we could buy for the funds. We bought some uh, bundle into special suits for the first time. We've recently started adding a new engineer into the into the fund. You know, there, there are plenty of companies that we come across in the ways that Jules talked about earlier that mean that there's plenty of ideas and plenty of scope to, to grow still. So we don't feel that the size is a problem for the fund. Um, and you know, neither, neither is the marketplace at the moment really pushing much money into UK equities. You know, the, the flavours where people want to put money at the moment seem to be global products and sustainable products. So we're not sitting here today feeling flooded by money and we feel that you know, we could take more quite happily. But everything feels pretty manageable and we're, we're happy. Yeah, and I, I would just add, you know, that, um, you know, from uh, more of a large cap standpoint, looking at things, it was never about, it's never about being, never been about cornering great big positions in small caps and, and riding those, you know, uh, with advantage. We genuinely believe that the process works and it works across all size bands and it has worked over time. Um, so that's, you know, if, that, if that's right, uh, then there's no reason to suppose that the fund shouldn't carry on being able to perform notwithstanding its its size okay well thank, thank thanks thanks julian i'll come back to you you again if that's all right um the, these attributes that you look for mean that the the portfolio is heavy on on what we might call the quality factor uh you'll probably be able to give a better explanation of that than me but really it's you know it's companies with low debt which, which generate strong returns when they, they do invest in their own businesses as you've discussed we, we came into this year with, with value stocks very much leading the way, but the performance of, of the quality area of the market, as well as your fund, has, has improved and been improving throughout the year. Do you, do you think the value rally is over, Julian? I think um, the honest answer is it's too early to say. I mean, certainly if we look at the very latest numbers, and here we're using, uh, again, the Quest product for definitions, if we look at the whole UK market, then value as measured by the top quintile value stocks have underperformed by about 1% over the past month. So there's certainly no signs of resurgence here. However, if you go on to look at quality on the same basis, it's underperformed by 4% and momentum by 3%. So, I mean, basically the message is that none of the, the big three style groupings are particularly helpful. So value was the least bad option over <laughs> just the last month. If you went out and, and looked at the last three months, then value has underperformed by 2%. Quality is flat. And momentum's underperformed by one percent. So that really, you know, style factors are not driving returns at the moment. And so, just to amplify a couple of further points, I mean, although, like you say, our funds do have a tilt towards quality and away from value, that really falls out of the individual stocks we select under the process. So we're not quant or thematic inv investors ourselves. As it happens, quality's got a really good long-term record, 
and it generally performs well in recessions or time of economic slowdown. So we're not unhappy with uh, with that bias. But the second key point is that uh, we are essentially bottom-up stock pickers, and so we recognise this isn't a straightforward question. The same stock you can appreciate can have both value characteristics. So, if, for example, it can have an above-average dividend yield, but also at the same time quality characteristics like a strong balance sheet or high return on capital. And so the aim of the fund is, is really to have a blend of companies united just by this intellectual capital strength, but diversified across different industries, at different stages of development, so the fund can, can pretty well cope whatever the market throws at us, whatever that turns out to be. And that has worked out well over the fund's life. You know, so if it is, if there is another value rally, it might be harder for us to keep pace with. If it's a short-term rally, particularly if it's a violent one, like last November that you're alluding to, but we usually manage to catch up and um, and more than catch up over over time. That's certainly been the historical experience. Okay, thanks, Anthony. I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you if that's all right. Um, a, a more a more macro question in a way. You know, soaring natural gas prices causing this energy crisis in the UK have, have hit the headlines recently. And you own Shell, BP, also oil services company Wood Group, which could all benefit from this. You, you might say. Firstly, you know, what what have you made of what's been going on? Is this a temporary blip or or a sign of kind of more major dysfunction? Um, I think it's a mixture of both. I think that the temporary bit mm. blip is clearly that, you know, economies are trying to recover. Um, there are logistics problems. There are ports having operational difficulties. So the recovery has been greeted by some supply problems, which is causing, you know, some quite big uh, changes in price. Uh, so that's kind of a short term issue. But I think there is, probably is a medium term, long term issue in that maybe before COVID times, you know, the, the world economy was operating on such a just-in-time type of uh, economic activity. And dislocations can cause significant upset. And perhaps some of these dislocations will be have a longer-lasting impact. And some of that's political. Some of that might be to do with, with you know, the, the, the sort of greater frostiness towards China. Um, some of that might be to do with uh, changes in wage inflation. And I think there's definitely a, quite a big change is occurring in terms of wage inflation, which is you know pretty sticky type of inflation once it gets going. So I sense that, you know, there is both a short term issue of demand and supply caused by big demand as we come out of COVID and problems with supply, but also some media and longer term impacts, which are, you know, to do with wage inflation, to do with changing uh, dynamics within the world politically, you know, maybe some increased onshoring. Um, so I think people people will be looking to hold bigger levels of infantry, bigger levels of stock um, than the kind of just in time, just in time type of economy that we had before COVID. Just also to add, add to that, if I might, Jeremy, the um, uh, you know obviously we <laughs> we do try to be bottom up investors, not top down. But on yeah. the, on the physics of the gas price. I mean, it's not all that long ago, a year and a bit, that we were actually fielding questions about the implications of negative oil prices and mm. gas prices. I don't know if you remember. You remember, uh, and you know, and did that herald major dysfunction? <laughs> so, I mean, I think basically the you know the long term position here is that there is there's always has been and will be volatility in these prices, 
Um, uh, and I mean, obviously that's amplified by a need for transition to renewables, but that's not going to happen overnight. So in the meantime, there's going to be an ongoing need for energy. And both of the oil majors have got en very good energy trading arms and uh, are well used to managing fluctuations in, in both supply and demand of different sources. And that continue to include renewables as well as um, conventional uh, sources for some time to come. Um, so, you know, we, we don't know the future, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but volatility, other than that volatility will endure. <laughs> yeah. And on that, on that note, Julian, I think you've had meetings with both Shell and BP recently. What, what have you been asking them to do and, and why? Yeah, so absolutely right. We've, we've um, seen both in the last uh, couple of weeks. So um, I think it's not so much a question of what we've been asking them to do. I mean, our standpoint stems from our process. We, we are not um, thematic investors, we, or, or at least we have a, a distinct process, but ESG is all the rage. We don't screen companies out on, on the basis of ESG. The sole question, as I said at the start, is we ask is do they have you know, an advantage stemming or perceived advantage stemming from these three things we look for? And, and we think unlikely though it seems to some people there's a great degree of, of intellectual capital in these businesses um not, not least expertise um you know engineering expertise um and distribution uh, royal dutch shell is the biggest lng operator in the world and lng is is a very complex um uh, industry where you, you you know you ship uh, products to, from one side of the world to the other you you, you actually cool glass um, to, to reduce the volume, ship it across the world and then, and then regasify it. Um, so Long-term contracts, you know, great business and actually perceived as perhaps the best of the conventional fuels just now. So uh, very much our interactions with BP and Shell have really been uh, designed to sort of test our thesis with them and also to sort of not so much to press them, but to understand where they're coming from. We are, we're not interventionist investors. We tend to support the management of companies we invest in. Um, and we want, you know, we want, we want to believe they're doing the right thing. And so really the sort of questions that have come up are in the example of, of Royal Dutch Shell, perhaps uh, MSCI, often seen as the, what, you know, one of the global benchmark setters for ESG considerations. They think that their view is that um, Royal Dutch Shell has failed the global compact. Is the UN's global compact, is that correct? So. We had a good discussion about that, um, and then their Nigerian operations, which have been a bugbear for the market and for MSG for some for a while. Um, you know, what, what are they going to do about that, um, and, and to what extent will that help their perception? Criticism over the net zero tar intensity target. You know, should you have an absolute target or a relative target? Why does it matter? Why have they gone for what they've got? Who who provides external? Um, verification of the emissions. Uh, what what does the Royal Dutch um, Shell uh, mantra of being in step with society mean is it an excuse or does it is it is it more um, profound than that? Uh, the risk of stranded assets, uh, the, the the recent court really all these sort of um, issues. So and I think we I think I, I think you'd agree we we found it very instructive. We found them very thoughtful, very well informed. Um, uh, you know, aware of the need to for cuts on a degree of cultural shift, but very much committed to 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 changing. They've changed. They've also committed at the high level to, to change strategy. And we think internally they are as well. They're, we think they're going to be part of the solution. They're not part of the problem. Uh, these are, are well uh, established, well trusted brands, energy brands, um, and we think that um, they are for a great opportunity actually for investors. Uh, because they're trading at substantial discounts in the market and yet there's this high level of expertise going back to our core belief um, within this business that, that enable, will enable them to pull this transition off. Mm, interesting. Well, it certainly sounds like very, uh, very busy meeting with, with Shell there. Um, 
That, that, thank you. Uh, Anthony, if I can, can direct this one, one to you, Let, let's talk a bit more about smaller companies and, and do feel free to, to refer to your other funds too. It, it's become a bit of a, a cliche about UK small caps being cheap and unloved post-Brexit, but actually th- their performance has certainly been better than the FTSE 100, hasn't it? Are, are you still finding smaller company bargains? Yeah, I, it depends what where you look in terms of cheap and unloved. I mean, over the years, many of our small companies have, have not been particularly cheap. But what they have been very good at doing is growing and compounding away for a long period of time. So they, what we describe as their kind of runway of growth potential has often been very, very big. Um, so when you're, when you're looking at our funds, you wouldn't say, wow, they're stuffed full of cheap small companies. What they are stuffed full of is companies that have got those intellectual capital barriers to entry, those high returns on invested capital, and then a long-term runway of growth ahead of them that means that they can compound away. So perhaps what's the secret, I think, to smaller companies is is not necessarily their headline cheapness today, but their ability to compound out over a long period of time, which can erode near-term expensiveness and then go on to deliver some fantastic long-term returns. And that's certainly been... The secret of companies like RWS or or Gamma Communications that we that we've owned for a long period of time is their ability to compound. Uh, you know, RWS since it floated, um, you know, way back in the two thousands, has grown its dividend every single year since it's been a listed company. Um, and that's you know that's the sort of hallmarks of a quality aim company, and what it can do for you in terms of investment returns. Yeah, and. Um... It, it, uh, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on on the the, the kind of new new uh, companies coming to market. In a, in a recent presentation, uh, you said a company called Big Technologies had been your first cornerstone investment at IPO. Um, this company makes wristbands which detect when elderly people fall and alert their their relatives, um, health authorities, and so on. Um, could you personally explain to our audience what is a cornerstone investment? And I was also a little surprised. Uh, by that, um, are, you, are, you, are you quite given your, your long term interest in smaller companies? Are you quite suspicious of, of new stock market listings? Yeah, just to sort of deal with cornerstone investing first. Um, what it enables you to do is you you can have a very good look at a company. You do the all the same sort of meetings and due diligence that other investors can do, but sometimes uh, the broker will approach you and say, "Well, look, we would." Uh, like to get a strong sense that this IPO is well supported. Uh, would you like to um, commit to, as long as the IPO goes ahead, would you like to commit to a decent amount of uh, the stock? And in return, we will guarantee that that's the amount that you will get. So you end up getting a decent allocation. And what can often happen with IPOs, particularly uh, you know attractive IPOs, is that there's a mass scramble for stock and sometimes the, the, the brokers end up giving it to their sort of favoured hedge funds rather than the long term small company funds that really are arguably more deserving of the stock in terms of being long term backers of businesses. So cornerstone investing is it's something we haven't really done much at all. You know, that, that was the first time we've done a sort of explicit one. Um, and it was so far a success for us. I mean, big technologies has, has performed very strongly. Second part of your question, you know, are we sort of more suspicious of IPOs? I think I think we are overall. Um, you know, a lot of these things are dressed up for the market. Um, we all know that the AIM market, particularly 
historically, or when you know when Jules and I started investing uh, in the A market all those years ago, you know it really was a sort of uh, a sort of wild west for, for cheap private equity in many ways. Um, but it's grown up quite a bit. Um, but I think one always should be suspicious of IPOs. You get much less financial information than a company that's been listed for a long period of time. Um, there are reasons why people might be selling the stock. So you know, what we like finding of IPOs is obviously all the characteristics that we look for. But we also like to sort of see a good commitment and ongoing commitment by directors in terms of equity ownership in our small companies. So you know, the, the really nice ones are where they are you know, perhaps selling down an element of private equity where the directors are still owning lots of stock. Some, some other members of the board are perhaps buying stock at the IPO. You can see that runway of growth that I talked about earlier. Um, and if you've got compelling intellectual capital, high returns on invested capital, you know, of course we're interested. Uh, but we're not interested in loss-making IPOs. We're not interested, obviously, if they don't fit the investment process. And we're quite sceptical when they are uh, businesses that are being sold down by private equity without much director's involvement at all in equity ownership. Um, and obviously, we don't like owning businesses that are you know, headquartered in exotic parts of the world and are using the London market as a listing mechanism. You know, we like to see businesses where you know, they are sort of UK-based and, and businesses where uh, we can get a strong sense of what they're about rather than some of the other slightly strange businesses one has seen listing over the years <laughs> and, and blowing up nastily. And I would just add to to to, to that, uh, you know, a golden rule, Joe, for the listeners: you you don't have to buy something just because it's coming to the market. You know, <laughs> the strength, the beauty of having a process: you you can afford to wait. Um, it, it will be there later on, and often often at a lower price level. There's a huge degree of hype often, as Ant says, accompanying or and pressure accompanying new issues. Yeah. Th thank. Okay. Thank. Thank. Thanks, guys. Andy, if I could just come to you again with, with this question. Um, according to Special Situations' latest fact sheet, you had about six percent of the funding cash uh, at the end of August. So that is about four hundred million odd, uh, given the size of the fund. I, I think. But you know, are you are you feeling cautious? No, we we sort of always aim to have a, a decent element of cash in the fund. I mean, as we spoke about earlier. You know, we, there is 20 to 30 percent of the fund in smaller companies, AIM companies. You know, they they have bouts of liquidity and bouts of illiquidity, but overall they're clearly you know less liquid than FTSE 100 stock. Um, so we always think it's useful and important to provide liquidity to our unit holders. Um, you know, in the event that somebody wants to take you know uh, some of their money out, you know, we've got cash to do it. Um, it seems a sensible way of of running the fund if you're also having that smaller companies element within it. Uh, it also gives us the opportunity if we're wanting to buy a new position, you know, we've got the cash there to do it. We don't have to sell other things immediately to do that. So, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, we've put a new engineering holding into the fund, you know, we, we're kind of building up that quite nicely and, you know, we have the, the cash and the firepower to do it. So it's about sensible portfolio management, I think. And I think the you know, the huge test for unit trusts generally was a period like the first bit of COVID, where the market was in free fall, where people could have been scrabbling to take money out of the UK stock market. Um, you know, actually, unit trusts generally performed really well in terms of being there and being able to, to deal with redemptions, um, you know, that might have come, come through. We actually saw creations <laughs> during the early part of, of COVID. People were putting money into the fund. But it's really important to 
you know, just be really sensible in the way that you build a fund and think about the way you, you keep cash in the fund and, and, and also reflect upon the types of business that you have in the fund and their liquidity. And that's what we, that's what we try to do. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Julian, if I, if I can come to you uh, with, with the last question, um, and kind of echoing the, the first question I asked Anthony here, um, we said earlier that you, you joined Lion Trust in 2008, when, of course, the financial crisis was unfolding. What, what do you think will be the enduring lesson of, of, of the current COVID-19 crisis for investors? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I actually started um, in the city in 1984. So I, I've seen the millennium bug, the dot-com bubble, lots of crashes. But I mean... Even with our experience, nothing prepared us us for this. Uh, I think the key lesson is 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 that you go back to basics and focus on what really matters. Whole, whole you know, when turnover earnings evaporate, um, you, you know, you're left with the importance of really balance sheet strength, solvency, and particularly critically access to cash. So it was a great reminder for everyone of, of the primary function of the stock market, which is which is just to, to provide um, liquidity businesses that need it. But more more than that, I think it was to make sure that you focus on the on the I'll say the solvency in the debt levels of your companies. We you know we, we looked at covenants, we looked at our gearing ratios for it was the first thing we did really, um, and monitored the situations very carefully. So much of the city is about very short term and focuses on the next quarterly earnings number. But um, uh, you know, really, this this is a, a clarion call to step back and say the things that matter about businesses are. Are, are, is the business model good? Is there a competitive advantage? Uh, and uh, does that manifest itself in a strong balance sheet and strong solvency? And kind of that's what we're all about, really. The businesses that have that will emerge to, to fight another day, whereas obviously, sadly, many, many didn't through um, COVID. Yeah. Okay. Well, as as you say, that that's what you're all about. Perhaps that's a a good point to wrap things up. Um. So all, all that remains for me to say really is, Anthony, Julian, th- thank thank you very much for joining me today. And it was uh, very interesting to learn more about your approach and, and get some of your current take on markets. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. And the final thing to say from me is thank you very much for listening today. Please join us again soon for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts. 